All right, so thank you guys for coming. Thank you all for being here. So tonight we're going to be jumping back into our study of Revelation chapter 2 and the seven churches. Um, specifically tonight, we're going to be talking about the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira. And what you're going to find with both of these churches as we get into them is that both of them dealt extensively with false teaching and false teachers, um, but they did it at different levels. And that's what we're going to talk about. Really, the next three churches that we're going to talk about, so you know, Pergamum, Thyatira, and in Sardis, all three of these, we're going to see a progression between them. Like Each one kind of gets worse and worse into false teaching. Um, to the point that Sardis, when we get into that, like, Paul, like Jesus literally is talking to me. He describes him as just a dead church. Like they've already been consumed by false teaching and by sin and by all these things, and he considers them to be dead. And so tonight we're going to talk about the first two. Next week we'll talk about Sardis and the next one. Um, so let's jump right into it with the church at Pergamum. And so essentially, you know, this these two letters here are written exclusively to these two churches that are seeped in false teaching and. Like I said before, there are different levels. There's different things going on, um, and it's not as bad at Pergamum, but it's still an issue here enough that Jesus has to address them or write this letter to them. So in Revelation chapter 2, um, we're going to be reading first verses 12 through 17, and this is where we kind of see this letter to Pergamum, and we see Jesus, and he's, he's writing to them, and he, he's kind of addressing them and everything that's been going on there recently. And so he starts off, and it says in verse... 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so... Right off the bat here, we're getting into this, this first church here where we see that this, this letter is written in large part to churches and to Christians who have found themselves starting to compromise the culture. Um, essentially, this letter is not just for the church at Pergamum. It's just like we talked about last week. It's written for all churches everywhere, but specifically this one is for churches and Christians who have found themselves compromising for culture, which if we're being honest, I think this is something that we all struggle with at times. And that's why this is so relevant for us, especially in today's culture, when we have the social media and online church and all of these things that just kind of fuel false teachings and spread them faster than we've ever seen it happen before. It's also a time in our lives where it's so easy for us to bend to whatever is trendy and whatever is going on in the world as opposed to just doing what God has called us to. And that's why Jesus introduces himself to this church as the one with the sharp two-edged sword for a mouth, just like we saw in chapter one, where he you know, John is giving us this description of Jesus and he, he sees Jesus and he describes him as having this mouth like a, a sharp two-edged sword. That's where this is starting to connect. His words will divide and destroy where needed. And right now that's needed in Pergamum, 
where they are in, they're they're allowing these false teachers to live among them. He even sends he even ends this letter by saying, "Hey, if you guys don't repent of this, I will come there and I will war with them myself." This is like worst case scenario for this church. They don't want Jesus to have to come back and handle these things for them because these are things that they should be doing as faithful Christians. And I love this because he starts off by kind of explaining it. This is a church that has faced intense persecution and even persecution to the point of death when it talks about Antipas here. Yet, they, it, even in the beginning, he says, hey, you've stayed strong and faithful through all of this, never neglecting to tell people about me, never neglecting the faith. But despite this faithfulness, however, at some point they began to concede to the worldliness around them, allowing compromises on things that should never be compromised on. Worldliness is something that the church has always struggled with from the very beginning. But again, we see it so much now in an age of social media and the internet where so many pastors would rather see their their face spread online than the gospel and where so many Christians feel the need to do what is trendy over what is righteous. And so Kevin DeYoung has this quote where he says, Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And I love this quote because that's exactly what we see in this church. These verses show us a church that is little by little begun to let these false teachers come in. And so we talked about the Nicolaitans when we talked about when we talked about the church in Ephesus. And one of the things that the church in Ephesus did right, one of the things they were commended for is that they hated the Nicolaitans, that they wouldn't let these false teachers anywhere near their church. And so now we see the flip side of that. And we see what happens when a church does let them in, when a church isn't isn't this strong against false teaching and against heresy when a church starts to let these things in. And what I love about this is just like I said before, we're going to see this progression that happens. It starts at Pergamum and then kind of goes on to Thyatira where they, they have not just, they're not just allowing these things, but they're embracing these things. And we move from the Sardis where we see a church that is dead, that is no longer living because of the sin and the false teaching that it has embraced. The problem with this church is that they allowed people to come in and teach that sin is not sin, which is something that I think sounds familiar to all of us who have been in the church for any amount of time. The tricky thing about Jesus's words to the church at Pergamum here is that they technically hadn't done anything wrong. He's not explicitly rebuking them for sexual immorality or false teaching. Instead, he's rebuking the church at Pergamum for tolerating this false teaching. Essentially, he's rebuking them because they just allowed this stuff to go on. Because even here, the language that he uses, he's not looking at them and saying, hey, you've been sexually immoral. You're, you're teaching falsely. Instead, he looks at them and he says, hey, you might have not have done these things, but you allowed these things, and that's just as bad. The fact that there are people among you who are teaching these things, maybe they're not even part of your church, but they are among you, and you have not kicked them out, and that's a problem. Essentially, they're not being rebuked for committing these sins, but for flirting with these sins. It's all about their intentions and what they're allowing. And I've said this to students a lot before, but as Christians, a lot of, pe- a lot of times I hear people talk about, you know, well, how, how far is too far and how close can I get to the line without crossing it? But the bottom line is, is that as Christians, we're not called to live as close to the line as we can without sinning. We're called to run away from sin and towards the arms of Christ in all situations. And that's what this church was missing. It's that they just kept toying with this idea of sin. And they were like, well, if we can just get a little bit closer, we're not going to cross the line. But it's right there. Like we can see them. We see the appeal of this. 
but we're not going to cross it. We're just going to get close to it. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I need you to repent, turn away from this, come back to me, follow me with everything that's in you, because that's what I want from you. If we are not running from sin, then we are drifting towards it. Just like how if we're not running to God, then we're drifting from him. What this does is this kind of removes the the black and white kind of language in the law and brings us back to the teachings of Jesus himself. When Jesus, you know, taught that that you don't have to commit adultery to commit adultery. If you're lusting, you you've already committed adultery in your heart. You don't have to you don't have to shoot someone to commit murder. Like if you hate someone, if you're harboring bitterness towards someone in your heart, you've already killed them in your heart. It's exactly what he's saying to him here. He's like, you guys may not have done these things, but you have allowed it. You've allowed this false teaching to creep into the church, and you've allowed people who do things that I hate to live among you, and that can't happen. This goes a lot further than just letting unbelievers take part in things. Like These are people who are teaching false doctrines, false gospels, who are leading people astray from God, and they're just letting them take part in the things they're doing as a church. Well, what we need to understand is that Christians in Pergamum likely did not seek out false teaching. Like They didn't just go around looking for people who were preaching a false gospel and say, hey, you should, you should come join us this Sunday. Like We'd love to have you in our church. However, what they did do was when this false teaching started coming in, when these, when these people, when these sinners started coming into their church, instead of, instead of sending them out or saying, hey, you can't do this here, or rebuking them, or even teaching them in true gospel, they just allowed them to stay and keep teaching what they were teaching. They allowed them to sit in their sin and their unbelief. And that was probably eventually going to lead to them influencing members of the church to start doing the same thing and to start following them in these false teachings. And that's what's so important about this. Again, it's not what they were, it's not what they were doing, but it's what they were allowing and what they would have eventually done had they kept allowing it. I think it's easy for us to look at them and say, man, how could they let this happen in their church? But what we should really be doing is asking ourselves where we let this happen in our own lives. How often is it that we tend to just kind of let this sin creep back in? Maybe, maybe we're not doing the sin, but we, we let ourselves get close to it. We let ourselves walk up to it. We let things back into our lives that we know aren't good for us, that we know aren't going to help us, that we know could lead us into sin. And we justify it by saying, well, I'm not doing it, so it's fine. It's crazy because Jesus tells them, he, he says, hey, if this continues, I'm going to come in and handle this myself. That's something that would probably strike great fear into them. Because he even says, like, hey, like, I'm going to come and I'm going to go to war with them. He's bringing the sword that divides and conquers all things. And he's coming to them and he's going to go to war with these people, these people that are living among them. It's just like how if... If you get pulled over by the police and your friend in the car is smoking weed, it doesn't matter if it's not yours because you still got pulled over with it in your car. Like That's the same situation. Jesus is like, no, I'm coming, and I'm going to take care of all the false teachers and the ones who have allowed false teachers to be here. Then we get to the part at the end of this letter, which is a parallel to the last letter where he promised a crown of life. Here, first he talks about the secret manna, which it just refers to the bread of life. It's this bread that we will never run out of, we will never be hungry again because it gives us life like nothing else can give us. 
then he talks about this white stone. And so the white stone was something that was often given to um, champions of different competitions and things. It was a lot like the trophies that are given out today. But what he's saying is, is, hey, you will be given a reward for your hard work and it's going to have a new name for you on it. Like, I'm going to give you this new life. I'm going to give you a life and it is going to be abundant and it is going to be free and you'll be rewarded for being faithful and true to this gospel. If we continue to fight against sin and false teaching, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. And that is encouraging for all Christians everywhere. So know that when we actually do the things we've been called to do, it's not, we're not just doing the right thing. Like we have rewards waiting for us. We have, we have eternity waiting for us. But now let's move on to the church of Thyatira. A church that has gone beyond just entertaining false teaching. A church that wasn't just allowing these people to, to kind of hang out with them. That wasn't just allowing these sinners to be among them, but suddenly a church that is actually starting to embrace these ideas. So picking up in verse 18, it says, and, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I, give, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, so Thyatira, situation there was a little bit more serious than it was in Pergamum because now they're not just letting these people be among them. They're not just letting these people take part in, in church. Now suddenly, these false teach, this false teacher there is influencing people and turning people away and leading people into sin, and they are embracing it. They're not just tolerating it. They're embracing it. Like People are following her into her sin. This is why I love that Jesus introduces himself with eyes like a fiery flame and feet of burnished bronze. Because we talked a few weeks ago about how eyes of a fiery flame, that refers to how he is all seeing. He sees everything. This is essentially him, him saying to the church, hey, I see those of you who are committing these sins, who are living this sexual immorality, this adultery. I see you. You can't hide that from me. I see all things, including your sin. I see all things, including, I see through the lies of Jezebel. 
There are no secrets with God. And then the burnished bronze is a reference to the purity and steadfastness of Jesus, a purity and steadfastness that he calls us to as well. Essentially, he's reminding them of what the standard is. He's reminding them of, hey, my life was marked by purity and steadfastness, and yours is to be as well. And purity means that we're not living in sexual immorality. We're not chasing after false idols and false prophetesses. And I love this because he does, in the beginning, commend them for their, for their works, you know, for their love and for their faith and their service and their patient endurance. But he spends a lot more time on what they do wrong, and it's because he understands the seriousness of it, and he wants them to see the seriousness of it. Like, there are people in the church who are still faithful, who are still loving, who are still doing the right thing, but there's a lot who are not, and he has to make sure that that is known and that he gets that out of the way. His rebuke here is actually very similar to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, where, where we see Paul rebuking the church of Corinth because they're letting someone who is like just entrenched in sexual immorality stay in the church. And he even tells them in verse 2, you know, in verse 1 he says, hey, it's reported to me your sexual immorality among you. And he's like, I've heard that this is happening in your church. And then in verse 2 he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Essentially, he's like, hey, if somebody's doing this in your church, they need to leave your church. If they are living in sin and they refuse to repent, then they cannot be in fellowship with your church. They need to be removed until they can come back and repent of their sins. Otherwise, they need to stay removed. Hopefully they come back, but maybe they won't. But it's better for the whole flock that this person is taken out. And I think it's important as we notice this rebuke that he's giving to the church. One, like Jesus isn't rebuking Jezebel here because Jezebel is a false teacher. Okay, He's not trying to address her. He's trying to address those who have fallen prey to her. He's rebuking those who haven't cast this false teacher out of the church yet. And despite the fact that it seems like they've been led astray, Jesus doesn't show sympathy for them. He's He knows that they should have known better. He's like, it's I'm not telling you guys to do things that you didn't already know. I'm coming to you telling you to do things that you knew better about, that you should have known, and that you still let somebody lead you astray about. I also love that Jesus specifically calls out Jezebel by name, but never addresses her directly. This tells us two things. One, that Jezebel's name is probably not actually Jezebel. Um, That's likely just Jesus comparing her to the Old Testament figure of Jezebel. You see, Jesus referring to her as Jezebel shows us the seriousness of her sins. He's trying to teach these people who spent this time in the scriptures learning about the Old Testament laws and the Old Testament prophets and all these people. He's trying to help them see like, hey, this is the kind of person that you have let be in your church. Someone who is only looked at negatively in the Old Testament. Jesus is making sure they all understand how much of a problem she is and that she needs to be removed. Not just, not just rebuked, not just told that she's wrong, not just given a time out, but removed from the church. Second, the fact that Jesus never addresses her directly shows that Jezebel is not legitimately following Christ. Like she's not just somebody who's misled or just wrong about a few things. Like Jesus is treating her as if she has purposefully perverted the gospel, as if she is an, an agent of Satan himself. He even says at one point here, he refers to this and he says what some call the deep things of Satan. So clearly he's referring to her teachings and her herself as being a part of of Satan's agenda. 
We should always show grace to others, but when it comes to those who are blatantly perverting the gospel, we must call them out and remove them from our churches. This is not just the job of the pastor and the leadership. This is the job of every single Christian everywhere. And that's why he's coming at this church like this. He's not rebuking the pastor. He's rebuking the church. He's like, guys, why are you letting this woman stay here and lead you into this sin and do these things among you? And it's crazy because he even, he even tells him, he's like, hey, you guys need to repent of her works, of her sins, of the things that she has done. You need to repent of that because it's, yes, she has come and led you astray and done all this. And it's her fault that that's happened, but you have followed her in that. And so you are destined for the same tribulation that she is. And I love this because he says, and all the churches will know after he says this, he says, he says, look, you must repent of this or you will face the same tribulation. I will strike her children dead. Like he is very bold in this language. And then he says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to you each according to your works. Just like how with the eyes, like a fiery flame, he can that, that penetrate all things. He can see all things. He searches us. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows our intentions. And to say, hey, I'm going to repay you for your works, that's something that should have struck fear into those who were there, who were listening, who were a part of this, who were taking part in these sins. Like they should have heard this and been terrified to know that Jesus could see what they were doing. He could see their heart and their mind and their intentions behind it, and that he was going to repay them for what they did. This means that even those who on the outside were putting on a really good front, for the other Christians in the church, that he still saw it and he still knew what was happening. I also want to point out here that not all of the Christians had fallen to Jezebel. Jesus actually commends the Christians who had continued to follow him. This shows us that just because others in our church have started to fall away doesn't mean that we have to follow them in their sin. And it means that sometimes this is going to happen in our churches and We have to be the ones who continue to faithfully follow Jesus no matter what happens. In the same way that he sees all sin, he also sees all righteousness. He sees all faithfulness. No faithful deed goes without him knowing. But ultimately, what we see here is a church that was a result of compromises that were made. This is the road that the church of Pergamum was headed down as well. This is the road that we are heading down when we let these kind of people and this kind of sin into our lives. The great news is is that in the end, he promises that those of us who endure to the end will receive power and authority. He promises them the morning star, which is himself. He's saying, hey, you, in eternity, you will be able to claim Christ. You'll be able to to put on my name and my name will cover you when you stand before the Father. He's going to look at you and see me and not you. And that is good for you. I'm giving you myself the best gift I could possibly give the forgiveness of sins, the goodness and joy that can only be found in him, the love that can only be found in him, the sacrifice that he made for us. So he promises us this morning star. And then he even says, hey, you can reign alongside me. You can rule and have power over nations. You can have authority along with me. These are amazing promises that are given to us for eternity, for the new heaven, for the new earth, things that we have yet to see, that we have yet to know about. 
because these are all still things that have been promised to us that, that we're going to see them one day, but we haven't yet. And it's just all the more reason for us to be faithful and to do what he has called us to do. We're not just trying to get through this life as a Christian. We're trying to go above and beyond to be faithful in every single aspect of our lives, in everything that we do. And I do want to note here that typically this this ending part where he talks about reigning alongside him and all of this, this is typically where premillennialists would read this as evidence that we're going to reign alongside Christ in a coming millennium. However, we would refer, we, we're going to interpret this as referring to eternity in a new heaven and new earth. Like the life to come, we're going to be ruling and reigning alongside Christ because we're going to be glorified in Christ. So ultimately, what we see is these two churches here, these two churches that have tried but have failed to follow Jesus faithfully because they are still allowing these things into their lives. So before we even wrap up, before we even start to get there, let's just take a moment. I, need, I want you guys to think about your own lives, about your own walks with Christ, about the, about the places in your own life where maybe you've started to let sin creep in. Maybe you've started to let people creep in that don't need to be there. Maybe you've started to embrace teachings that aren't the gospel just for the sake of it being easier. Like, it's really easy to stand up for Christ boldly when it's not the real Christ that you're standing up for, when it's a Christ that this world loves. And so I know there's always that temptation there for us to not be faithful, to give up on the gospel, even in small ways. But it's so important for us to stay faithful, to kill the sin that's in our lives, to constantly be running away from it and running towards the arms of Christ. So what do we do with all this information? How can we do what God has called us to do here? How do we keep from ending up like those churches? Well, see, there's a quote that I love from J.C. Ryle that I think really addresses this. J.C. Ryle says, what is the best safeguard against false doctrine? The best safeguard against false doctrine is the Bible regularly read, regularly prayed over, and regularly studied. we are spending our time reading the Bible, praying over the scripture that we've read and studying the scriptures, this is the best safeguard we could possibly have against false teaching, against false doctrine, against false teachers. And this is important for us because if we know what the Bible says, then we will know what it doesn't say. If we are rooted and grounded in the word, then we will not be uprooted by the things that happen in this world. So let this be an encouragement for us to faithfully follow Christ and to follow him no matter what the circumstances of our life are, no matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter how many people are telling us that it's stupid and trying to turn us away. Because he's given us everything that we need in his word. And if we are spending our time here, if we are versed and we know what this book says, then we'll be able to faithfully follow him in all situations. We'll be able to stand against false teaching. We'll be able to stand against all things that happen in our lives. So now let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your words to the churches, for your revelation to John. God, for, God, for all the amazing things that you have given us in your word, all the, 
all the evidences of how good you are, of how faithful you are, of how powerful you are, but also all the reminders of how much you love us and care for us. God, over and over again, we are reminded of your faithfulness, and yet sometimes it is still so hard for us to remain faithful to you. So continue to give us these reminders, God. Help us to stay rooted and grounded in your word. Help us to meditate on it day and night and to embrace it. Even the parts that are difficult, even the parts we don't understand, even the parts that we don't want to agree with, help us to embrace it wholeheartedly. God, protect us from those in this world who wish to lead us astray, who wish to lead us to a false gospel, to a false version of you. And help us to remain steadfast no matter what the people around us say, no matter what's happening around us. Even should our church stray from the gospel, help us to stay faithful and to pray for those who are being led astray. God, in all things, we give you glory. In all things, we give you praise and worship and honor. God, help us to be discerning. Help us to remain steadfast. Help us to live faithful lives. And help us to do all of this for your glory. I pray all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, so... 